Hey, everybody, and welcome to the podcast, where we get to hear stories and insights from leaders in the Catholic creative world every week. Today, we're talking with Bob Keith, who has been working in the entrepreneurial space for over 30 years. He currently teaches at the Bush School of Business and Economics at the Catholic University of America. In this podcast, we hear about his journey from consulting at Fortune 500 companies to becoming a Catholic and working with spiritual entrepreneurs. Bob and Anthony talk about the church's deep startup roots and how we can learn business lessons from the saints and spiritual leaders in our past. Thank you to our Patreon sponsors for making this podcast possible. Let's get started. Welcome from Little Rome. <laughs> so where, where is Little Rome? Where are you right now? Well, I'm actually right across the street from the campus of the Catholic University of America, uh, literally uh, right behind the USCCB. Um, and uh, this neighborhood, the, the Brooklyn neighborhood, the broader area around here is affectionately known as Little Rome because uh, outside of the Vatican, there are more Catholic institutions and organizations in this area around the Catholic University of America than any other place in the world other than the Vatican. So they affectionately call it Little Rome. That's beautiful. Uh, how, how is it out there? Is it pretty, pretty cold? Actually, it's not too bad today. It's about uh, 55 degrees. Uh, I just, uh, our family just got back from San Diego, uh, spending the holidays there for Thanksgiving. And um, so I'm still wearing shorts, uh, but I suspect that'll change <laughs> soon. <laughs> nice, man. So what are you doing out there? What's, uh, tell us a little bit about Bob Keith and his adventures in Little Rome. Well, let me, let me just state that um, um, I, I love to uh, tell people, particularly uh, younger people, that uh, 30 years ago when I sort of first started my professional career, my journey, I never would have expected that I would have been here. Uh, for a bunch of different reasons, and perhaps we'll find out more about that uh, in a little while. But um, So I'm here at the Catholic University of America, and specifically, uh, I am at the Bush School of Business and Economics, and then more specifically, uh, I'm at the Sioka Center for Principled Entrepreneurship. Um, and I came here a couple of years ago um, at the request of a couple of individuals because they were thinking about building a new business school. Um, and I believe that the Bush School is the, uh, uh, the, the most recent addition to the, the business school uh, uh, portfolio here in the United States. Uh, but, but I came here um, and I'm in the Sioka Center and we're working on some very interesting projects and initiatives and so on and so forth. And, I suspect we'll get into more of that in a second, but I'm here. I'm not an academic. <laughs> I'm an entrepreneur by, by uh, training, if you will. Um, but I'm here and uh, having a great time in Little Rome. You were at the Sioka Center and involved in principal entrepreneurship, but you're an entrepreneur and you have a incredible story of entrepreneurial adventures. How did entrepreneurship become something important to you? Was that part of your family upbringing? Was there someone in your life that really instilled that sense of entrepreneurship and self-startingness in you? Uh, great question. And it's another question I like to talk about to people, which is, no, I have no, there's nothing unique about my family background. My, my mother and father were not uh, entrepreneurs themselves or even small business owners. Um, in fact, so my, my, my sort of journey going back, you know, 30 plus years, uh, um, when I went to the Wharton School um, for my MBA, and I like to tell people that uh, back then, that they were pro there were 750 uh, um, folks in my class. Hmm. And I would say at the time, maybe a half a dozen of them were inter interested in entrepreneurial things, new ventures, things like that. Um, I was not one of them. Um, back then, uh, you know, the traditional path out of a school like Wharton either was you went into investment banking in New York, uh, real investment banking, or you, you possibly um, went into things like management consulting. Uh, and I took the latter approach. But the, the, the point being that 
uh, entrepreneurial ideas were not as uh, robust back then as they are today, but it was through the discovery of my own career, my career path, uh, that I eventually uh, became very interested in entrepreneurial thinking. But it was effectively, you know, a result of an accident. So what was the accident? Well, um, that's a very good question. So my, my career path uh, really was when I left Wharton, I went into management consulting, uh, worked in a bunch of different industries on very interesting projects. Um, and then I, I joined a, the first of uh, two or three Fortune 500 companies sort of global, global businesses. Um, and I was working in Chicago at the time uh, at Abbott. And I was in one of the operating businesses there on the sales and marketing side. Um, and I got, a, I got a call from a headhunter that was um, on the West Coast and they were looking for someone for this early stage uh, sort of high growth company uh, in the pharmaceutical or life science space and wanted to know if I'd be interested in, in joining. And again, up until that point, I'd been management consulting, I'd been in Fortune 500. Um, but what was interesting was in the, the position I had at the time in the, at Abbott, um, we were doing what people would describe today as very entrepreneurial things. We were trying to figure out how to serve a sort of new type of customer, uh, how to approach them, how to build a business unit to serve these new customers. It was very much entrepreneurial thinking as we would think of it today. Um, and so when this company called me, I went out there and it was in San Diego. Um, and I, I, was, I still remember the, the first day uh, sitting there waiting for the, uh, the first of many interviews to uh, occur that day. And I was sitting in the lobby and I just saw this buzz of activity. People were running around. They were, they, they were very focused on whatever it was they were doing, but they seemed to have a smile on their face and they seemed to have a real sense of purpose and meaning. And I thought that was very, uh, it was obviously very different from my experiences in Fortune 500 companies. I mean, I love Fortune 500 companies. I have lots of friends that are still there. It's a great training ground. But I began to realize that maybe a better fit for my personality, my experiences, my, my, my interest, if you will, might be in one of these smaller companies. And so I, I ended up deciding to, to take the opportunity. Claire and I, my wife, and our three children moved out to San Diego. And we spent literally the next 20 years uh, in San Diego, and we still have a home there. Um, but uh, working, I worked with a number of startup and early stage companies and this and that. And it's, it's what I like to say, it took me a while, uh, as I suspect it'll take uh, most people, to sort of find their sweet spot. Uh, where, where their gifts, where their passions, where their their uh, the sort of interests lie. It takes a while to kind of find that magical fit. And for me, uh, I found that magical fit in sort of what I call startup world. Um, I really enjoy early stage and, and early growth companies. I like the excitement of it all. And, uh, and so I did that for literally the next uh, sort of 20 years of my life. And, and, and what was interesting about it is that eventually um, I became the, the co-founder and the CEO of a couple of startups, uh, mostly in sort of the biotech or med tech type space, which is very typical in sort of the San Diego area. Um, and um, it was really uh, through those experiences that I began actually to think that um, there must be sort of a better way to build a really great company. And it wasn't that, um, it, it was sort of the, the, the innate curiosity that I had. Um, and I obviously was new to startup world and, and was drinking out of a fire hose trying to figure out how, to, how it worked. But as I went forward, I kept thinking, gosh, there's gotta be a better way to build a great company. And so I'll stop there, but um, um, that was really sort of my entry into the entrepreneurial world. 
Um, and it, as I said, it really began a 20 plus year uh, journey through through uh, startup world. It sounds like there was a dissatisfaction at that point. There's a problem that you were trying to solve too. But before jumping forward into that, I'd love to hear just the startup adventure, maybe one or two moments. Yeah. So to give you a sense of uh, a couple of experiences or moments in my startup career, I remember um, in, in, in the startup world, it's quite common for a company to be formed, um, to go about the, the business of doing what they're doing, and then there's some inflection point. Um, mm -hmm. Either uh, the company's idea works or doesn't. Uh, they may go public, they may be bought, things like that. And so there's, um, I, I came to learn that in, in the startup world, certainly in San Diego, my life became a series of five-year sprints. Um, and it wasn't exactly five years, but they became five-year sprints where, where a team would get together, uh, we'd, we'd figure out something interesting to do. Uh, we would spend five years, 24-7, trying to you know, realize the dream. Um, and then something would happen, good or bad. Uh, we'd, we'd disband, and uh, I'd spend a year or two thinking about stuff. And then we'd get the band together again, and we'd build another <laughs> thing. Uh, now, again, it's not that perfect, but it had that nature to it. So mm -hmm. it was sort of a series of five-year sprints punctuated by two-year reflective thought-provoking periods. And then we all hang out at the same uh, coffee shop and, and just try to build a new business. Uh, so that's, that's, sort of one, that's sort of one observation I had. The second one was, uh, that might be of interest, is I, I still remember thinking at, at the end of one of the companies, it was, ended, it was sold to a, a much larger company. Um, and we all sort of disbanded from that. Um, and I remember telling the chairman and CEO of the company at the time, I said, you know what, you guys probably could have paid me nothing um, because I learned so much and I was around so many interesting people that really, really, you could have paid me nothing because I got so much out of this experience. And so I think that that, that you know, maybe this is a sidebar issue, but it's this issue of most people don't start businesses or entrepreneurial ventures because they're looking for money per se. They're looking for the pursuit of something. They're trying to crack the code. They're trying to, you know, realize a dream. They're trying to solve a big problem, whatever it is. You know, if, they, if, if it goes well and they're successful, good things will happen. But most people do it out of their sheer interest and passion in solving a big problem. The original vision that you had when you saw that startup, that fast growth company, and, you were, and noticed that there was purpose in the way that they were approaching their lives, you were just around them and felt this energy of purpose. I've personally also found that in my own experiences of the adventure of starting a business, but scary and taxing. And there's these moments of, I don't know if this is going to work, and like crazy. Um, all of that is, is a big part of the journey too. How did that impact those big ups and downs and sprints? I'll use another uh, analogy here, which is uh, similar to the five-year sprints punctuated by two-year periods. I called it the whitewater ride. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, they were, they were whitewater rides. And um, I think the upside, the, the feeling that things were going very well at some point was incredible. It was just incredible. Like I said, someone could have paid me nothing because I was having so much fun. Mm -hmm. And we were doing so many fun things. And I was around a bunch of fun people that were all trying to work together and get something done. Now, the downside was when things didn't go well, it was pretty ugly. Uh, right. And whether that was a restructuring of the business or for that matter, uh, you know, you know, closing the business down, uh, those things happen. And so um, it is. And so that, Anthony, that in part was some of the thinking that was going on in my head near the end of this sort of 
his journey, you know, to the top of the food chain in San Diego, running biotech type companies, was mm -hmm. there must be a better way to do this um, because, you know, although the upsides are great, there are downsides and there must be a different way of sort of approaching this and um, getting, getting good people together and, and doing something meaningful and doing it over a longer period of time. That was one of the things that sort of left me scratching my head was, hey, you know, it's like getting a band together again, but at some point, wouldn't it be nice just to sort of be building a meaningful company uh, and doing it in a way that uh, provided you know, upside and benefits and, and rewarding experiences, but doing it sort of a different way. Now, now the point being that in the startup world, and it still exists today. And all of these companies, for most part, were venture-backed companies. And mm -hmm. so, you know, my perspective on what was important and the investor's perspective on what was important wasn't always the same. And I always say to people that when they're looking to raise capital, whether it be, you know, through philanthropy or from, you know, private sources, private equity sources, make sure that you are aligned with the investors, because that's one of the biggest problems that can happen is that you become misaligned and therefore things happen. It doesn't happen in every case, but but going back to your question, uh, there were ups, there were downs, but I kept thinking there must be a better way to sort of build a better company. Why do you think that is? Well, I think in, in the, uh, let's call it venture-backed world today, the investors uh, are are very eager to obviously find the right, you know, 10x type of company, right? Uh, that's the nomenclature they use a lot, 10x. And they're looking for that 10x. And, um, you know, once they find it, they want to realize that as quickly as possible. Um, I think you're starting to see some nuances today in the venture world, but point being is that they want to drive hard and drive fast. Um, and so their expectation is that they want to get to that 10x or whatever the magical number is as quickly as possible. Um, and so a lot of it's driven by the investors, but to some extent it's also driven by the team wanting to, to do stuff. And so uh, do, do it fast, that is, and be successful. But I do think that, that there needs to be, you know, it's sort of like the tortoise and the hare which is, you know, there are two different ways of getting to the end zone, if you will. Right. Um, and, and I think the traditional venture-backed world is very much, you know, getting there fast. And I think we're beginning to, some, I'm certainly beginning to think about different ways of building businesses that might have a sort of a longer-term horizon. And that right. in part is what we, we're, we're thinking about here at the Sioka Center. But um, that's perhaps a different, different uh, conversation as well. No, I think that's actually really important. What happened in your life to put you on the path that you are now? I would say maybe two things, at, at least two major forces or, 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 yeah, I'll call them forces that were at work. One was this, this desire to find this better, this better sort of business model for, for building great companies. Um, and near the end of my tenure uh, in, in the more traditional venture-backed companies, I came across, uh, and this was 10 years ago, okay, I came across this group of entrepreneurs, these, what, what was being described at the time as really social entrepreneurs, okay? Uh, I became very interested in what they were doing, and um, I don't want to equate the social entrepreneurs uh, of 10 years ago with what we describe them as today. But 10 years ago, it was still a relatively new field, a new type of entrepreneurial field. Um, and so I was very interested in what they were doing because I felt like there were things they were doing that might, might lead to thinking about building this better way to create a great company. And so I spent some time. I, spent, I thought I'd spend six months, but I spent almost six years working with some of these social entrepreneurs. And I learned a lot um, about, you, about what they were doing and how they were going about it. I spent time in places like East Africa. Uh, they were doing some really interesting work there. Um, 
not just in East Africa, but in sort of the so-called emerging markets. Um, and they were doing some very interesting work there. And I wanted to, I wanted to learn what they were doing. And so I worked on some projects and some initiatives there. That was one thing. Um, that was one force that was attracting me. Um, at the same time, uh, there was something else going on in my life, which was my faith life. Um, and I, I was uh, born um, in the Protestant world, um, going through the, the more or less mainline uh, denominations, uh, Methodist, Presbyterian, so on and so forth. My wife was a, a cradle Catholic. Um, we had three kids at the time. They were all being um, going to, you know, faith formation and stuff like that. Um, but my faith life was beginning to take off. Um, and it's what I call sort of a, a second curve. My first, the first curve was really my professional life, and what was going on there and where, where that was leading me and the social entrepreneurs and stuff like that. But there was a second curve. Um, the, the second curve was building, and it went from like, you know, very low level to very high level very quickly. Uh, and, you know, in part, uh, as I was getting more interested in, in faith, in my faith and my spirituality, um, it was also beginning to weigh on my thoughts about my professional journey. Um, and in about 10 years ago, I, I came into the church, I converted, um, and I, what, I, what I like to describe is that there was a productive collision that took place between my professional journey and now my, my new emerging uh, faith journey. Um, and so it wasn't just what I was thinking about doing professionally, it was what I was thinking about as an individual, my faith life, and 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 I was very intrigued with uh, with the Catholic Church and its history, the, the intellectual firepower, the faith aspect of it, and it really began to make me think much more deeply about who am I, uh, where am I going, and what should I be doing, um, you know, for the next chapter of my life, um, and. I will tell you that once I converted and then began on a very steep slope up the curve on my faith life, it just began this process of, or it enabled this process to take place where I really began to think very deeply, as I said, about what, what did I really want to do with the rest of my life and how could I get there? And so those two forces, the professional journey and the, the emerging faith journey, collided and I just it just shattered every all of my thoughts about what I was really supposed to be doing. Could you tell me the story of that curve? Like how did that happen for you? So on, on the faith on the faith side, uh, which is probably uh, the more interesting piece of this, the professional one obviously you've heard about. Right. So um, what I like to tell people is I try to simplify it by saying I came to California uh, 20 years ago, and I like to tell people I found a faith in California, okay? That's sort of the first of the contrarian stories, right? I found faith in California. <laughs> well, people don't think of that, right? But there are some very deep faith-filled communities in that state. And so I, I found a faith. Um, the second thing is, second part of this sort of journey was um, our, our children were, were at the point of going to middle school and, and then on to high school. And we had a decision to make as to whether or not they would go to the, to, to the local public schools or whether we would send them to private schools. My wife had grown up in the Washington, D.C. area uh, and had gone to you know, Catholic schools for most of her life. And, and felt like we should really be thinking about that for our oldest son at the time. Um, it turned out that there was no Catholic high school that was really close by, um, at least at that time. But there was a, there was a really interesting school that was very close by. It was a, a called an evangelical school. Um, and um, my wife uh, and I thought long and hard about it and said, well, okay, let's try this. So 
all three of our children went to this evangelical school from middle school and high school. And uh, my, my two boys graduated there. My daughter uh, ended up going to the, to the Catholic high school, which had opened up uh, a few years later. But uh, all three of them had experienced the evangelical school. And it was at that point that I was like shocked because all of a sudden, my son at the time was playing football and, and baseball and stuff like that. Um, and um, the, 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 the individuals are at the school, the, the teachers, the coaches were just, they were on fire for their faith. They were very successful individuals. Um, his football coach was a guy named Brian Seip, who um, was the most valuable player of the National Football League in the early 1980s for the Cleveland Browns. Um, the, the baseball coach was a guy named Rick Aguilera, who won two World Series rings. And so he was around some very successful people in their own little profession, but these were men of deep faith. And it really, it really took me by surprise to see how these people were living their lives, how they were expressing their faith, how they were training and teaching the young men and women um, that they were guiding. And it really, that was sort of the second piece of my faith journey was I was sort of uh, awoken to this, to this sense of a deep spiritual life being perhaps very productive and useful in their lives. And so what I like to say is the second contrarian story of this journey is that I converted to the Catholic faith and it was through the evangelicals that, that uh, converted me. And, and, and really the third piece of this, this faith journey, sort of the third contrarian piece of it is, it was really uh, near the, the, the end of my, my professional journey um, in sort of the traditional venture-backed world where the last, one of the last companies I worked on, it didn't work out. Um, it was a failure in sort of a traditional sense, but but it was more of a disappointment. And so that failure, that disappointment in that professional experience really made me think long and hard about who I was and where I was going. And again, how I wanted to spend the rest of my time on, on earth. And uh, that, so, so it was through that business failure or that business disappointment that was the third piece of the contrarian story that, that led me farther up the faith journey curve. And so, again, it's sort of an interesting story in that way. I never could have, you know, I never would have predicted that was going to happen. And so that's why I like to say to people that, uh, you know, 30 years ago uh, that I would be uh, a Catholic and that I would be entrepreneurial was neither of those were on my mind. Like there's a purpose that you're, you're seeing there that, that um, you're not experiencing in your, in your day-to-day life and that it catalyzes a move into the entrepreneurship world. And then the second big moment, a new discovery of deeper purpose, like another culture that is living out a purpose-driven life in a way that's just really beautiful. And it catalyzes another ma- like major shift in your life. So what was that shift that, that happened towards deeper purpose well, as I said, I was professionally, I was sort of pursuing this, this un- better understanding of these social entrepreneurs and uh, going to places like East Africa. And it was very interesting. But so funny uh, what, what can happen to you, because as I was interacting with these social entrepreneurs and, and, and working with them and in and, and, and meeting more and more of them, I began to recognize that there was yet a third type of entrepreneur that I had, was sort of dealing with. You know, if you, if you go back to my journey, it was more of these tech-based entrepreneurs, the, the biotech and the medtech entrepreneurs. That led me towards these social entrepreneurs. And it was in this time of, of interacting with these social entrepreneurs that, as I said, I discovered this, this hard-to-define new type of entrepreneur. And for a long time, they had a hard time sort of defining them or putting them into the right cell on the matrix. 
um, but I eventually labeled them as these spiritual entrepreneurs. Um, and, and these were individuals that were deeply motivated by their faith. And they were trying to pursue solving a big issue, uh, whether it be through a nonprofit or through a for-profit. But they were applying what I would describe as cutting edge entrepreneurial thinking to their particular venture. Um, and at first, again, I had a hard time sort of classifying them. But as I began to sort of dig in, I began all of a sudden to find more and more of these so-called spiritual entrepreneurs. Um, and and that, that discovery of these spiritual entrepreneurs in combination with my, my, my faith journey, um, it, it, was just, it was just incredible. I was perhaps motivated once I discovered these spiritual entrepreneurs to, to better understand what they were up to and how they were going about doing their business and this and that. But it was discovering these spiritual entrepreneurs that, that was really very, very interesting to me. Was there a, a time when, as you were discovering that spiritual entrepreneur, that you felt like a new level of this is what I was made for? The same way that first movement in your life in the startup world, was there a new experience of that? Absolutely. I think there really was. Now, now so in my life, my faith life was becoming much more important to me than even my professional life. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of, the, the curves have crossed, if you will. Mm-hmm. And faith was now becoming very, very important to me. And to the extent that I found an avenue to perhaps apply the 30 years of my experiences was, was a great discovery as well. I, I can remember uh, some describing this story to someone a few years ago, and they said to me, uh, Bob, do you think that your first, pick a number, 25 years was sort of a waste of time? Now that you've sort of found this, 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 this ultimate fit, perhaps, between your faith life and your, your vocational professional life. And I said, uh, no, um, I think that uh, God was just preparing me. And that he said, Bob, go, go spend 25 years figuring out uh, the business world and in particular the startup world and the entrepreneurial world, because once you have learned all about that, I have a bigger job for you. And I, I think of it that way these days, that he was just preparing me for something I knew nothing about. Um, and he was preparing me and um, I was receptive to moving into this direction. And these doors opened up for me to find something that obviously would tap into my gifts, my skills, my experiences, my talents, uh, and, and, and perhaps be useful to, to uh, broader society in that regard. What is the new thing? Well, I would say that the, the, the two things that I'm focused on these days are the spiritual entrepreneurs. And um, uh, I, as I said, I have spent the last couple of years sort of tracking them down, stalking them, if you will. In fact, that's how I came across Catholic Creatives. <laughs> Um, sort of stalking in, in finding these different organizations. But so I have been working with uh, spiritual entrepreneurs um, called small businesses is probably 10 or 20 that I've interacted with. But I've also been working with uh, not just the individual businesses or the individual startups. I've also been working with uh, what I would call various movements. I've interacted with young Catholic professionals, I've obviously interacted with Catholic creatives. Uh, there's a few other movements that are taking place out there uh, that in particular involve young adults. And uh, so I've been very intrigued with sort of the, the movements or the communities that are beginning to build. Um, and I think that that latter piece, these movements in the communities are really in, in some ways part of an ecosystem. Um, that is going to be necessary for for this 
set of entrepreneurs, these spiritual entrepreneurs to, to ultimately be successful um, is, is going to need to be a, a very strong and vibrant, a rich, a deep community, but also an ecosystem um, that can help supply, whether it be capital or mentoring or uh, other services, if you will, that are being necessary for these, these startups to be successful. So I've been spending a lot of time both at the individual company level and in some of these movements, trying to better understand all that. Um, so that's been one, one area that I spend a lot of time on. The second area, and it's related to this, is, and I, I'm running a big program here uh, at the university, is in uh, inner city small businesses. Um, and that's perhaps a completely different subject. But what I discovered was in these small businesses that that these small businesses, and they could be, say, between a million and $10 million, you know, they're not startups, they're not $50 million companies, but the startups have been, it's sort of like they've, 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 people have lost touch with startups uh, in, in, in regards to the small business type of, of vehicle. Um, and I do think that um, you know, people tend to focus either on the tech startups or they focus on the Fortune 500. They really don't spend a lot of time thinking about small businesses. But if we really think about small businesses in this country, it is, you know, small mainstream uh, small businesses are the heart and soul of American entrepreneurialism. Have all it's always been the case. And so if we could think about these spiritual entrepreneurs and think that many of them are gonna be eventually small businesses of one sort or another. Um, I think there's a really interesting opportunity to take the whole spiritual entrepreneurship movement um, and then sort of combine it in a way with some of the work that we're doing with small businesses um, uh, in a way that could really eventually produce more successful, more fulfilling companies that are living out their faith in whatever creative uh, arts they may be doing or or services they may be providing. So we so met we at, at Napa, Napa, the Napa, Napa Institute, a really swanky event where a lot of more wealthy insider Catholics come together in Napa and have great wine and shrimp scampi every day and uh, talk about God. I had been, you know, shaking hands and, and meeting people like a complete fish out of water, trying to explain what Catholic creatives was. Uh, as soon as I would start, people's eyes would just like glaze over, you know, and then we sat down and we're having dinner and you knew who Catholic creatives were and were like excited to meet me. And it was like this incredible moment of affirmation uh, for what we're doing. I was just so surprised that you already knew about us. Like, why, why do you feel like the church is lacking in embracing uh, or seeing the potential that you're able to see in these kinds of movements? And how do we change that about the church? So what I would describe is that that so-called chance meeting at the Napa event was obviously not a chance meeting, as I now know. It was obviously the Holy Spirit at work in some way, shape, or form. But, um, and we did have a great conversation. And again, there, and I'll just make one comment about Catholic creatives, um, is, is I was working with some of these small businesses in the inner city here in Washington, D.C. I discovered that uh, quite a few of them, um, maybe 20% that I was sort of interacting with, were either maker companies or creative type of companies. And I found that very interesting. Uh, they weren't just, you know, uh, mom and pop sort of uh, service businesses, but they were making stuff. They were trying to do some creative stuff. And it, it really, I, I thought to myself, you know, maybe there's an opportunity for a revival of these maker and creative companies. And so in part, when I sort of ran across Catholic creatives, I said, wow, that's really pretty interesting. I mean, there, there's these creative types and all kinds of creative skills, and they're trying to work together and, and build a movement. And I said, that's the kind of stuff I'm beginning to see in this other program. And I thought to myself, if we could figure out a way to, you know, sort of uh, leverage the two uh, initiatives and, and so on and so forth. And that's obviously how we sort of got connected on that conversation. 
But I think that the church, um, and obviously I'm a, I'm a newcomer, I'm a convert, right? So I'm sort of like the, as, as someone has described, the converts are like the special forces of the church coming with guns ablazing and everything else. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But my point is, is that, and I'll go back to a story, Anthony, that, that I, I know I relayed to you at one time. Um, so about three years ago, my wife, Claire, who's, you know, cradle Catholic, been going to uh, daily mass now for, you know, probably 20 years, said to me, well, you know, would you like to start going to daily mass with me? And I'd been to daily mass here and there and stuff like that, but no consistent sort of participation, if you will, other than special events or occasions. So I said, sure, uh, that would be great. I think that would be, you know, a nice piece of the, you know, the next phase of my, my faith journey. And so we started going to daily mass. And so what does she do? She hands me what I call the playbook, which is she hands me a Magnificat. And that's obviously got the readings for the day. There's, there's different messages each day. And what's interesting is uh, there's usually uh, each month there's the, uh, a saint of the day. And they provide, at the end of each day or every other day, they'll provide a description of um, a particular saint, and you, you hear a little about their history and what they did, and this and that. And I, that, that, I found that very intriguing, you know, as a part of the whole package. And so I said to her at the end of the first month of going to daily mass, I said to her, I said, Claire, do you realize how many of these saints were founders that, and, and that were effectively spiritual entrepreneurs? It, it is amazing. Um, and so from that point forward, I have kept every single Magnificat over a three-plus-year period now. And I have put yellow stickies on every page where it mentions a particular saint and it mentions that they were, they were a founder of something or they were a creator of something new. And it's amazing. And so I started thinking more about that. And I said, you know what? The church doesn't seem to be using this history that, you know, whether it be the Benedictines, the Cistercians, and, you know, the Middle Ages and all the creative things that they all did. Why are we not tapping into that history, that knowledge? And, you know, to some extent, I know that at the last summit or the, the initial summit you guys had this past year, one of the talks was sort of about the new renaissance. And that's exactly, that fits right into this story of that the church's history is, is so robust with respect to being very entrepreneurial and, and, uh, and going about building certain things and creating certain things and so on and so forth. Why are we not leveraging that more? I think young people, young adults in particular, would find that very interesting. And then there might even be lessons learned from that. So to me, when I talk about spiritual entrepreneurs, I, I talk about it sometimes as, well, it's a new type of entrepreneur, at least new in terms of the type that I'd run into prior. But in, in essence, it's a rediscovery. It's a reemergence. And in, in your nomenclature, it's like a, it's time for a new renaissance uh, where, whether it be the, the, the various creative arts of the maker, the maker making of products and stuff like that, we need to revive that, really do something different. So from my perspective, um, it was a discovery perhaps by accident, but I think it fits into where the younger generation really wants to, to move in. Um, and so to me, it's, it's, a, it's a natural fit. And quite honestly, I think of spiritual entrepreneurs as being, you know, the next version of the new evangelization engine. Absolutely. I think that it's always been the case that entrepreneurship and evangelization have coincided in the Jesuit movements uh, going into the missions and starting these little agricultural centers where they're solving the problems of the people that they're trying to reach and teaching them skills and uh, starting communities, starting businesses even of, of selling food. And they didn't just start churches. They started these full-out ecosystems uh, wherever they went. And the same thing is true for St. Francis and for 
uh, movements of the Holy Spirit, they've always accompanied, been accompanied with the spiritual depth and richness of the faith, as well as an energy for life and for living. And for Absolutely. I, and, and I think the other thing about this, Anthony, that really intrigues me somewhat intellectually is the fact that I don't think we have spent a lot of time going back and sort of, if you will, studying um, carefully how these various orders and movements in the Middle Ages and beyond, um, how they went about doing this. And um, what were the sort of business lessons, life lessons learned that could we extract some of those, those insights, those, those, those special tools or processes or, or communication strategies, whatever they are, we need to go back and look at that and say, well, how, how are they able to be so successful, quote unquote? And can we take some of that and use that to begin building, going back to my point, can we use some of that insight to use to build companies going forward where, going back to my original point about being concerned about, you know, there must be a better way to build great companies. Well, maybe, maybe we have knowledge of, of what's worked in the past and maybe we just need to go back into our own church history and discover some of those truths and then bring those truths forward to be able to build the next generation of great businesses. Absolutely. The last point that I'd love to love you to respond to is the term Catholic creative, because when we started, that just became the rallying name. It was just descriptive, right, of what we were doing. In some ways, it's a misnomer because within the word Catholic, creative should be assumed. Yes. And the fact that it's not is actually uh, problematic, right? Like the church it sh itself should be the movement of creativity because God was creative. When we act in the God, we are acting as creators, as people who are solving big problems in the world. I think the same thing can be said for entrepreneurs, that it's useful as a designator because many spiritual and many spiritual people are not entrepreneurs. But if the calling of the church was really true, that designator wouldn't be necessary because every spiritual person would be creating, nurring in some way, right? And vice versa. So could you respond to that? Well, I, I, it, it'll be very easy. Yes, you're right. <laughs> because you're absolutely right in both cases, Catholic creatives and the, the notion of spiritual entrepreneurs. And in, in, in both cases, you're spot on that... Um, inside our church, inside our, you know, the faith and, and the theology, um, we're, we're meant to be creative. And the same is true in entrepreneurial world. I, I think what happens, and clearly this must be the case with respect to Catholic creatives, I know it's the case with spiritual entrepreneurs, and I'll, I'll, I'll answer the question on the spiritual entrepreneurship side. People will say the same thing to me. said, Bob, you know, really, you know, what's a spiritual entrepreneur? Isn't it, shouldn't someone already be doing that? You know, if, if they, if they have faith and they want to go out and you know do good works and whatever, I go, yes, but they're not doing that. And what we have to do is we have to sort of create, we have to create an awareness, um, a rediscovery that uh, in both cases, and certainly in the case of spiritual entrepreneurs, that this is a this is a this is a part of the history of the church. This is not like this, we're, we're, it's like a revival, it's a renewal, it's a rediscovery, it's a reemergence, it's all of those terms. And if we are successful, if Catholic Creatives is successful, and the spiritual entrepreneurship movement is successful, pick a number, 10 years from now, we'll drop Catholic and we'll drop spiritual. <laughs> I'm excited for that vision when we can drop those designators because they are so lived out and assumed. Anybody that's curious about this uh, topic of spiritual entrepreneurship, what, where to uh, to read more and to to study more? Well, there's there's obviously uh, a bunch of uh, I shouldn't say a bunch. There are some carefully crafted sources where you can begin to learn a little bit more about this. You know, I'd be happy if someone is interested uh, just to drop me a line, an email or something, and and uh, I'm happy to have a conversation. Um, and or uh, once I understand what their particular interests are, is, is I might be able to identify a couple of sources that might be good for them to take a look at. 
you know, if you want, um, you, you can certainly give them my, my contact information at the university. And as I said, I'm happy to, uh, I'm happy to follow up because uh, at, at, at this, this stage of any kind of a movement, whether it be your movement or the, the broader spiritual entrepreneurship movement, it's all about connecting people. Uh, and having conversations and building community and building momentum. And so I'm happy to bend over backwards and and uh, share what I know um, in the hopes that it it, uh, it ignites someone else in the movement. Amen. Well, that is a beautiful generosity. And I'm so grateful to you for the, uh, the encouragement you've given us uh, and for the passion that, that helps to light the fire under me and other people that are a part of this. I'm so deeply grateful and look forward to the next time that we get to interact and, and, and see each other. In 2016, we issued a call to creatives, entrepreneurs, designers, and artists from all over the continent to come together in Dallas because we believed that the time was ripe for a new renaissance to take place in the church. 85 of the most talented young Catholic leaders in the Americas answered the call, coming together because of this shared vision. And what took place at that summit was a flowering of community that was beyond description. And it is now clear that new da Vinci's, Mozart's, Michelangelo's, Beethoven's, and Medici's are being brought together to blaze new trails for the gospel, to build new businesses, ministries, and works of art that will be catalysts for massive culture change. And if you are listening to this, then you have also answered this call, and we are so grateful for your participation in this movement. If you want to hear more from the speakers, participate in monthly professional development webinars, and be publicly represented on the Catholic Creatives website, you can make this happen by supporting us on Patreon. Your support and your commitment are vital for the growth and mission of Catholic Creatives. And the rewards are awesome. So your help means everyone can benefit even more from our community this year as we sponsor our creative projects and plan next year's summit. The time is ripe for a new renaissance, a counter wave of beauty. Our world needs aesthetically and philosophically articulate leaders, artists, creatives, and risk takers. Our world needs you. We'll look forward to hearing more from you in the community on Facebook and Slack and at the regional meetups and at the summit. We'll see you there.